Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. I've been truly privileged over the last few months to bring you some remarkable and inspiring stories. The Camino provides. To give you an idea of how unprepared I was, and it was intentional, when I walked away in 2016, I hadn't heard the term Buon Camino until I was heading to bed on my first night on the way. A Dutch couple, Bert and Alicia, were staying with me in the old convent in Sahun, and after smoking cigars, drinking red wine, looking out over the rooftops of the ancient town, we went off to bed. They told me they were walking because Alicia had terminal cancer, blood cancer. She wanted the pilgrimage to be her last gasp. We shared the wine, the cigars and tears. And they said, Buon Camino, Dan. But I didn't know what they were saying. It was, of course, the pledge of the pilgrim. And I was transformed. Translated simply as, Good way, the Camino provides. Well, my guest this week is 70-year-old Will Bogue. And he has... Parkinson's disease. He's enjoyed an eclectic and very busy work life, predominantly in the field of human services, has an incredible life history, and yet this blasted disease threatens to rob him of, well, his everything. But he keeps walking, and he keeps walking Caminos, and I hope to find out why over the course of our discussion. It's a sunny Thursday afternoon in Sydney. I'm sitting on Will's balcony with his wife, Corrie, a cup of tea, a Tim Tam, and Will Bogue. Welcome to My Camino, the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thanks thanks for having me here to talk with you. Great. How many times have you walked the Camino, and what routes did you take? So we've talked, uh, we've walked, sorry, uh, three times. So we've done the Camino Francais from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port to Santiago de Compostela. The next year... We walked the Chemin de la Puy, which goes from de, de La Puy in France to Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. But the Pyrenees being the challenge it is and one of the loveliest things that my wife and I have enjoyed about the Camino, we had to go over it. Uh, so past the finish post and then on to Pamplona. The third one was um, in Italy and it was called, it's called the Via Francigena which starts in Canterbury. We didn't start in Canterbury, in England, and, and goes down to Rome. So we started on the southern side of the Alps in Italy, in Vercelli, and walked from Vercelli down to Rome. Um, that's what we've completed. The next challenge is, to, is a few mountains, which are a little bit more of a challenge than the, ones, than the smaller ones on the other Caminos, and that's across Switzerland. So we start in uh, Rorschach on the Austrian-Swiss border. Um, haven't really decided. We've got a few routes through Switzerland that we've looked at, but probably walking to uh, Lake Geneva might go to the French border, but there's also a big attraction for us to go south over the Alps through the Sa- uh, Great St. Bernard Pass, which is uh, a challenge and obviously a, a beautiful part of the world, and down into the Vale d'Aosta in Italy, which is a, a magnificent part of Italy. I mean, I'm intrigued because I began the, the, the interview saying that you have Parkinson's disease. Yet sitting here, you're as fit as a Mallee bull. You, you clearly 
judging by what you've just said about your plans and, and your history of walking, you clearly love to walk and intend indeed to keep walking. I want to know what it's like to have Parkinson's disease. So can I ask, what is it? The, the primary part of Parkinson's disease is the loss of dopamine in the brain. So um, it, it comes in a variety of, <coughs> excuse me, of, of forms and no two Parkinson's people have the same uh, symptoms. But that because of that lack of dopamine, uh, it affects a lot of mainly our physical condition but partly the mental condition as well. Uh, physically, it's a, a loss of balance. Um, uh, a loss of movement, incremental loss of movement over time, Uh, the possibility of getting a weaker voice, um, the tremor that uh, everybody probably identifies a Parkinson's person with, and um, dyskinesia, you might have seen uh, Michael J. Fox, when he walks around he's His body flails a bit and his arms move around quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And that can sometimes be the result of medication. So they're generally the symptoms. It can possibly lead to Alzheimer's uh, with people being very apathetic because of the lack of dopamine and uh, also not involved as much as they could be in life. And therefore the lack of the use of the brain tends to uh, or can lead to Alzheimer's. So the lack of dopamine in the brain is what causes it, or, or is the symptom and it, it, it what develops, but what actually causes it? How do you, or why do you get it? Uh, researchers don't know. There's, there's been a lot of investigation into that. Um, people who have had uh, knocks on the brain, uh, uh, and, and also... Uh, Muhammad Ali, obviously, is well known for having it. Being a boxer, it could have had a bit to do with it being knocked in the head quite a few times. Uh, There's been some familial uh, genetic uh, possibilities, as they've seen uh, children of people with Parkinson's get the disease. Um, There could be chemical factors. Uh, Agent Orange in Vietnam was uh, also brought out as a, a possibility. But nothing really has been firmed up as, as the cause or a cause of Parkinson. And how did, it, how did you become aware that you had it? I'd had a couple of hip operations and um, uh, we, we wanted to walk and the hips were holding me back, one especially. And uh, the surgeon who did the hip operation wasn't able to uh, see me in rehab. So he had a a friend of his see me who happened to also be a neurologist. And I remember walking down the hallway myself before I saw the the other surgeon. And I looked in the mirror. There was a mirror just at the end of this long walk down the hallway. And I thought, that's not a, a hip malfunction walk. There's something funny going on there. He noticed the same thing. So when I saw him for uh, a progressive uh, report on my, on, my, uh, on my hip condition, he said, can I give you another couple of tests because I'm concerned about something. He did those tests, tapped me on the forehead, got me to walk a few spaces and said, um, you've got Parkinson." So that was the first time someone had, uh, well, I, basically I'd been diagnosed, whereas a year or so before I had a weakness in my left arm and a term you might have heard of called frozen shoulder which is sometimes a precursor for the condition 
that my osteopath had mentioned to me, oh, maybe you've got Parkinson's, and uh, straight away went into denial and told her that it was to do with the frozen shoulder and nothing to do with Parkinson's, uh, but it was. And so how did you react, Will, when told Parkinson's? I mean, that, that, that word, you've obviously had a vision in your, of, in your mind of what it meant when it, when it came out of the surgeon's mouth. How did you react? And how did you react in the days after? Yeah, a bit of a shock. The, the sh- and I say a bit of a shock because I had been told by my osteopath or it had been suggested by her that I had it. So it wasn't something brand new. But to be told, I guess there were mixed emotions. One uh, on the negative side was that I had a disease that was incurable. On the positive side, uh, being a person who needs to know, I finally knew exactly what it was that I had a problem with. Um, in the days following, a bit down, I uh, talked to my wife, discussed where we go from here. And uh, I think within the next few months after talking about it, well, I decided to work out who that I was going to tell everyone. But where do I start? And, uh, and that was with family and then with friends and then with work. And by doing that, that got me to realise that I, I did need to talk about it. And I was not going to hide it from anybody. So you, a lot of people listening to this would be listening through headphones, walking, because a lot of people living in the Camino love to walk. And you've found that walking helps, haven't you? Walking's been, been great. And the, the big thing about walking uh, for me is that the biggest scare the scariest thing I suppose with most people that I've talked to with Parkinson's is the lack of movement because once you stop moving there are so many limitations on on your life what you can and can't do so um, I've been a bit of a walker not walking to this extent but a sort of a daily walk here and there and um, I thought this is going to by walking I'm going to be able to do things that other people without Parkinson's can do and maybe I can try and meet that challenge a bit further by doing it even better than them. So um, I talked to my wife and she was a little bit dubious to start off with. Um, she likes walking, but 800 kilometres is a long way <laughs> and needed a lot of discussion. So, so when was the diagnosis? We should ask that. Uh, 2011. Okay, so six, six years ago. Yeah. Let's get really into the nitty-gritty of what you're living and breathing each day and we haven't started talking about the Camino so the best is yet to come but you say your purpose is sharing useful insights with others living with Parkinson's and using neuroplasticity to make changes to lifelong inhibitions you say a vital component is in the mutual exchange of experiences so that knowledge can be shared projects can be more fulfilling and relationships enriched just explain that. Did I write that, did I? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, I guess maybe we start off with the exchange of, uh, of knowledge and experiences. What I wanted to do right from the very start is make sense of it because I thought by making sense of my disease, I could use it in a positive way. Um, I'm a positive person and the only way I knew to get something out of it was to let people know that I had it 
and then they would ask questions and you I would never know where that might go and it's gone in so many different directions um, I've had newspapers uh, write and letting people know that I'm going on the trips I've, I've gone on my trips with a sign of walking for Parkinson's on my back which is a, an instant turn off for some people who probably a bit scared of talking to me but for most people it's a, it's, it's a sense of engagement and so I got to talk a lot, got to find out how other people felt, got to learn a lot about myself and about others and then I would exchange this information with, with, with other people. I guess also there's so many things I do for Parkinson's. I uh, do dance with Parkinson's, uh, I do uh, Parkinson's songs, so we have a small choir um, I do an advanced rehab program which uh, gets where people with Parkinson's tend to go inward physically and mentally. Mm. The exercise program brings you out the other way. Um, it got me uh, learning different things. I decided to learn poetry after reading Stephen Fry's book about poetry and uh, I, I write a lot of, a lot of that. It got me then into prose, and I was never a person who uh, was very good at these areas. So they got me talking with others, exchanging ideas, finding out what their loves and passions were. Before Parkinson's, I didn't have a lot of conversations like that. So in that's, to that extent, it's really enriched who I am and, and my relationships with other people. That I, I think you're the poster child for Parkinson's. I think... <laughs> Because you have, you're not a sufferer, are you? No, no, that's exactly right. And uh, I think after reading, which was a little bit later on, reading Michael Fox's book, uh, something like I'm a Lucky Man, um, inspired me quite a bit to see a guy who, whose life was, uh, uh, had its ups and downs before he had Parkinson's. And he made some big changes which revitalized his life, revitalized his life to an extent where instead of saying his life had improved despite Parkinson's, he said his life had improved because of Parkinson's. And I thought, what a great way to look at it. And therefore, everything I do is centered around uh, making my life better in any way possible. I don't always succeed at that, yeah. and I don't want to overblow that, but... Um, it, it seems to be a, a continual process for me now. I want to take you back, if I may, Will. Uh, it's quite some time. You're in Vietnam. You're a Vietnam veteran. How how significant is that in your life? Uh, not not very significant today. Um, I didn't want to go to Vietnam. Um, I tried to get out of going to Vietnam. Um, and it wouldn't have been very popular in those days to do so. And uh, in some ways, I, I, I do regret that I, that I did go. Um, but having said that, I have uh, had good, some good close relationships because of that. And I guess the experience of seeing war has um, deepened my understanding of, of war and given me a much clearer picture of the of the idea that I'm against war uh, so much so it's reaffirmed that a lot more um, I don't go to Anzac Day marches I talk to my friend on Anzac Day and have a bit of a chat with him 
and think about the guys who suffered and, and died. Uh, our company, especially D Company 5 Battalion, uh, got into some pretty serious strife. A lot of uh, the, the company uh, members died and wounded. So, um, yeah, it's a time for, for reflection for me, but um, Vietnam doesn't really uh, have a lot to do with my life today. It's interesting for listeners, uh, perhaps listening to the podcast outside of Australia, Australians did not welcome home our Vietnam veterans. In fact, we, we treated them appallingly. And it is very, very dark stain on the Australian psyche, in my view. How did you cope with that? And how do you now reflect on that? Yeah, very difficult. Uh, because I wanted to not go... I, I gave some excuses to the government of why I shouldn't go and they th- thought about it for a couple of months. So because they thought about it for that time, I didn't go in with a massive uh, conscripts. I went in on my own. So because I went in on my own and you stay there for two years to the pretty much to the second, I came out on my own. So I didn't have a lot of company around me. So it was very isolating and uh, I remember I came out in uniform and I couldn't get rid of my uniform quickly enough. I didn't want to talk about it. Um, And even though we weren't welcome, uh, I could understand why we weren't welcome and what those people were doing. But uh, I didn't agree that that's what they should have been doing overtly uh, to a lot of people who didn't have my thoughts. So a pretty sad time and uh, I don't think too many came home uh, in good shape. Yeah. yeah. And many still live with it, the difficulty of that lack of acceptance and acknowledgement today, don't they? Very much so, very much so. In 1987 they had a welcome home parade and that was really our debrief and that was great. I went to that um, and, and found that really fantastic that... Uh, that wonderful song, I was only 19, and it brought tears for the first time probably to a lot of veterans, including myself. Um, and uh, it was a real uh, a real chance of sort of renewing your life and starting again without those, uh, those bad feelings occupying a lot of your mind. Let's move on then. Let's move on. And I want to go back to the just before your first Camino. Do you remember what the motivation was? Yeah, the, I, I remember we were travelling in Europe for nearly the first time and we'd been to over in Europe for about three months because we had a wedding in one month and then three months later we had another wedding. One was in England, one was in France. So we thought we were going to just go to one of them but we thought we'll go to both of them and that meant going over there for three months. And during that time, we were walking in Spain. And uh, I had heard uh, about the Camino because I worked for a Catholic organisation. But uh, it, it wasn't sort of a very... Uh, it wasn't mainstream in my mind. I wasn't too sure what it was. And as we were walking one day, um, we saw these yellow arrows, which we'd heard about with the directions of the Camino and saw these people walking with packs on their back, some without packs, and thought, gee, wouldn't that be nice to, to just go on a walk like that? So we'd arrive in a town um, in Spain and then walk 
with the arrows for as long as we could, knowing that we had to come back to our our, uh, our place of sleep. And then the next day we'd walk against the arrows and come back. And the great thing was that we were having the odd chat with people who were walking the Camino and enjoying the walk. But the bad news was we weren't continuing and coming back was hard. So it got into us that we want to keep going. Yeah. How do we do that? So that got us talking and uh, buying books about the Camino, talking to people who had done it, and um, the next year we, we started. And do you remember on finishing that first pilgrimage that you felt you would do more, perhaps many more? Uh, I wanted to, and I remember when we got to uh, Santiago de Compostela, I wanted to keep on walking, and I really didn't want it to stop. It was like, how can you wake up in the morning on the Camino and not walk? Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. So we're a bit of a, I was a bit of a, at a bit of a loose end. But what helped us was the uh, Galicia, the region of Spain, uh, around Santiago de Compostela is known for its rain. And it rains more than many regions in the world, I believe. So it was raining on that day. It rained the next day. It rained for a week after that. So... We were happy to, at that stage, to finish it. But the continuation of the walk was going to happen in my mind. Um, I just had to convince my wife that it, it was a good idea. I interviewed a couple of weeks back Rebecca Scott, who loved the Camino so much. She was an author, a writer in the United States, packed up and moved and now lives on the Camino and runs a... Okay. a well, she's not an albergue, but she invites pilgrims to stay in her home with her husband. Uh, and and she said to me, oh, I asked her, do you, do you subscribe to the view that there's a lot of spirituality and mystical nature of the Camino? And she said, oh, there's some serious juju happening there. Were you a spiritual person before you went? Uh, and did you find that? You and Corrie, your wife, who's sitting with us here? Yeah, we've, our, our spiritual path is a, a meditative path. Um, we belong to a, um, an organisation called the Self-Realisation Fellowship and most of that is, is around meditation and the idea of mysticism where we see the idea that we, uh, there is a pathway of self-realisation and that the, uh, the saints of Christianity, the Sufis of Iran and the yogis of India we believe are all realised people who have achieved uh, nearly similar status to God and so our path is is probably a mystical path Um, but then coming back to the spirituality of that is our, our belief before that is to get to that point is to do a lot of personal development and uh, while we're alive to try and make changes to make yourself a better person in the best possible way to open the even just open the door uh, a little bit to allow you to start the journey towards self-realization which might take uh, thousands tens of thousands of years well naturally and that's I think something if you are somebody who considers themselves to be spiritual that's your, that's your eternal quest, isn't it? Yeah. You, you, you're trying to seek that self-realisation. Yes. So even though we weren't uh, heading towards 
St. James in, in Santiago de Compostela uh, in a, a real sense because of our belief in, in what saints have achieved. Um, I guess there was a feeling that this is a, a special pathway. Yeah. And so um, without wanting to get there and go to the church and have everything realised, we really wanted, we, I guess it gave us a feeling that we we're on a special journey. Yeah. And that's as close as I can get with that, I suppose. Yeah. I always ask, <clears throat> pardon me, I always ask pilgrims a couple of logistical questions. So the nuts and bolts of the Camino, if you like. What's the first thing you pack? The first, well, not the first thing I pack, but the first thing I try and get right is my shoes. Yeah. And I got that wrong. <laughs> and I went around to quite a few different shops to get the right shoes and walked out feeling very comfortable in these pair of shoes. And I was very comfortable in them. But I didn't go to a shoe shop that's a, a sort of a Camino shoe shop where they give you a, a slope of yeah. a downhill grade and get you to stand on that because if I had have done that I would have realised my shoes were about half an inch too short and because of that um, I lost uh, three or four toenails with the blisters coming up under the toenails and quite painful <laughs> but as I was walking along I couldn't understand I had the best shoes I'd spent a lot of time choosing them and I thought this must be just the normal pain that you get from walking 20, 25, 30 k's each day, it seemed that maybe that, that's what happens. And then I found out when I, uh, I had a look at my feet after about 300 kilometres that this is serious stuff. Minstri. I'm in stride. <laughs> so I saw a podiatrist and uh, uh, I'd been told earlier not to prick the blisters and not to remove the toenails. And the first thing the podiatrist was was prick the blisters and take the toenails off. <laughs> <laughs> what, after many Caminos, would you recommend pilgrims leave behind? Uh, half the weight of their pack, probably. Um, we didn't carry our pack because we thought we were too old and too frail and I'd had a bad back, a uh, chronic backache from Vietnam and uh, I'm mostly lying down, not sitting down because of that. Uh, but when we started the Italian Camino... There was no uh, no way of carrying of having your pack transported, so we had to carry it. So what we decided to do was to make that as light as possible. So we think we're um, we're in the run f to to win the or pretty get close to winning the the lightest pack carried on the Camino. So what your last one? How heavy? About five to six kilo, and that's with water and everything. That's pretty light. It's, it's, it's pretty light, and, and, it, and it worked for us. We, we don't carry sleeping bags, but we do sleep in albergs, not all the time. Uh, but we realised uh, when we did our first Camino, uh, we were in a very cold place. There was no heating, and we didn't have our sleeping bag. So we dressed in our clothes for the next day and found that was a pretty good sleeping bag. <laughs> So we didn't have to do that in Italy because we always um, uh, had a blanket and because not too many people were walking the Italian Camino, there were spare blankets and we usually had a dormitory on our own being husband and wife. So there were, there were lots of extra bits and pieces to, to choose from. 
can I ask you to pinpoint one spot on the Camino you love above all others? Let's say the, the Camino Frances. Uh, the top of the Pyrenees. And uh, just the fact that we... I, I, I suppose the, the fact that you've got there was quite exhilarating because it, I, I think it's probably the steepest and probably the hardest part in, in our experience of the Camino. And just to be up there and looking out, uh, we've been there twice now. Once was fog and we couldn't look out, but the other time was uh, we could see a whole lot of the mountain range and see the, I'm not too sure whether they're vultures or my wife's telling me that we've been up there three times, up to the Pyrenees. So it's a very special place for us. And um, I remember learning how to do the tango because it was being, we were told with having Parkinson's that uh, doing the tango and dancing a bit backwards and sideways and improving your balance and your movement that uh, that was a really good thing so um, on the top of the Pyrenees we had a tango dance uh, <laughs> that was quite a special that's fantastic and if I could and I'm going to get to the dancing in a minute because that's that's a, a really lovely thing a feature of of your of your journey, and I want to talk about that. But before we do that, a tip for people listening considering walking the Camino. What's a tip from a four Camino veteran? It's a three Camino veteran, but it's coming up four in, up. in May 3rd. Uh, the, 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 the best tip, and it's, I'm repeating myself, is to get your shoes right. Because if you, if you don't get those right, your trip's, your trip's really in, 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 in peril. Um, knowing that your feet are right and they're going to be the things touching the ground the whole way uh, are really crucial. Also, if you've um, if you've got poles and I've I've seen uh, stubborn males <coughs> in their middle age saying I'm not going to use those poles like everybody else. I've seen them switch and turn after a, one Camino and say I'm going to use those poles. But when you use the poles. Don't use them like most people use them, as hiking poles. I've done um, Nordic walking, and uh, I've been trained by uh, uh, an international professional, so I class myself as a pretty good Nordic walker. And being able to use those poles in the way a Nordic walker uses them, by putting them, planting them forward and pushing yourselves along, and not just good for people with Parkinson's, but good for anyone. But for Parkinson's especially because it forces you to bring your arm right up forward and right the way back because our arms don't want to do that. They want to hang by our side. So it forces you to do something that um, you don't want to do. But the added benefits are is it pushes you along and saves your legs as well. So you can give your legs a rest by using your arms. And uh, I found that really, really important part of it. When I went to your website to do some research, I was intrigued by your list of achievements and goals. Now, one of those goals was dancing and singing with people with Parkinson's disease. Why singing and dancing? Well, I've had problems with my voice um, to such an extent that I went to St. Vincent's Hospital and had uh, surgeons poke and prod my throat, saying that uh, I was in serious trouble because when my vocal cords were supposed to be closed, they were open. And when they were supposed to be open, they were closed. And I was mumbling 
quite a bit in those days. Uh, what you're hearing now is not a perfect voice, but it's a lot better than it was before. And they suggested they use Botox, and I thought Botox was used for other things, oh, which, which it is. <laughs> and I, having a father that was against surgery uh, sort of played on my mind a little bit and influenced me to look for maybe another alternative. So I went to see a speech therapist, wonderful speech therapist, and they took me through voice exercises. And I guess one of the things I've got from Parkinson's is, or what I've realised, I've got a lot more discipline than I thought I had. So with these things, it's no good just going to a speech therapist, you must do the exercise. So I did that. I went back to um, the surgeon uh, after the voice exercises and got him to proke and prod again. And he said to his assistant at the time, um, we, wow, he said, we could use this for people with muscle spasm in their throat. And so it was like an Einstein moment for me. I thought, this, is, this guy's just uh, jumped out of the bath and realised well, the water's gone down. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and so uh, ever since, my, my throat has been fine. I keep up with the exercises. And singing was something I thought would be good to... Uh, keep up that that work yeah that's part of it but you still need to um, express yourself as well as you can to do uh, read aloud uh, take the opportunity when you're in a social uh, scene to to talk as well as you possibly could it's all all part of uh, getting the voice right the uh, dancing was something else I was told and uh, so I had previously done the tango and um, now they have uh, dancing for Parkinson's and uh, I found that that's very close to where I am in, uh, in Balmain and I've just found that uh, really wonderful and it's great for all people with Parkinson's because you can do it sitting down so a lot of it is to do with fine-tuned movements so people who are not used to moving their hands not used to moving their feet and not just moving them but moving them in intricate ways and intricate patterns and the music's wonderful, the teachers, uh, one of them was uh, associate director of a, a ballet centre, so they know what they're doing, knowing what, know what they're talking about. And um, it's superb, and it gets people into a social setting, and, uh, and they seem to really enjoy it. I, I enjoy it. Tell us about the book you wrote, That Guy with Parkinson's. <laughs> Tell us about the book itself. Was it cathartic? Was there was there an un, unburdening and, and and a release for you in putting pen to paper? It was. It was. It was. It was also making sense of my disease, and that was the the precursor for that. I'd never written anything. Uh, I'd never published anything, and I thought this is an opportunity to live by what I'm talking about and extend myself as much as I can. So I guess writing the book is one thing, putting it together is another, and then finding a publisher and going through all the not-so-exciting creative paths uh, is, a, is, is another. So that was great. Um, my book is about uh, 40, the 40 days, I think it was, that we walked. Uh, on one side of the page was the day's walk, and I tried to make the writing as interesting as possible. On the other side is a photo of something that uh, happened that day. On the top is a, a small metaphor about a learning from the Camino. 
and at the bottom of, of the, uh, that page is a sonnet. And uh, I use the sonnet uh, mostly, and I, I, I love that, because the sonnet, uh, especially the Shakespearean sonnet, is about contrasts. So your first six lines of a Shakespearean sonnet are about one point of view or one way of looking at something. The last eight lines are about a contrast or something seen through other glasses. I, I thought that was quite a, a clever way of writing poetry and allowed me to do what I do today is contrast all the time, uh, looking at the good, the bad, the healthy, the unhealthy, the positive, the negative, and uh, it all sort of seems to fit together. You're heading off in a couple of weeks' time, and when I spoke to you yesterday to line up that time for our chat, you'd been fast walking. And I was thinking, fast walking? Oh, that must be something to do with the Camino, but it's not. It's, it's therapy. Yes, and uh, it's not... Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a fast walking program that's not covered by research. So it's, it's, it's anecdotal based on, uh, in my knowledge, one person's success of doing this fast walking program and he believes he uh, has um, got rid of most of his movement symptoms. Uh, John Pepper's his name from Cape Town, he's written a book um, and he's part of the uh, book uh, The Brain's Way of Healing by Norman Doidge who is, uh, is one of the founders of, of neuroplastic changes in the brain. And um, John uh, found out about this program from Walk for Life in Cape Town. And the idea is that if you walk as fast as you can for an hour, um, during that time, uh, and, and walking very fast, the brain thinks that you're in danger and fleeing something. So whenever the brain believes you're in danger, it tries to nourish and promote neuron growth to protect you from that danger. We've lost neurons. We've lost a lot of the, uh, the potency of neurons. So the idea is that maybe in Parkinson's, this will be able to do um, what medication is doing. And then the possibility of maybe reducing your medication and not being totally reliable on medication for the rest of your life, knowing that one day the brain's not going to accept that medication anyway. And so there are other alternatives, uh, surgery, deep brain stimulation, uh, and intravenous uh, medication. So, um, yeah, I'm doing that fast walking program, which is seven kilometres, up to seven kilometres an hour, and just yesterday I did 7.1 kilometres an hour, which I was very happy with. And uh, after having a few problems, um, I've got uh, degenerated cartilage in my feet. Um, the hips are renewed, so they're a really good part of it. Um, and this, there's a very slow movement of my left leg, so I've got to consciously move that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that three times a week, and hopefully I can do that for the rest of my life. I've been doing it for three or four months and uh, I'll keep on doing it and see what happens with that, what results are. Uh, so once again, that's anecdotal stuff. I can't really research it. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty, pretty happy with the progress of that. 
you, you mentioned earlier the, the meditation, and and I found when I walked the Camino that one foot uh, one foot in front of the other for hours after hours was almost almost a sense of meditation, almost trance-like sometimes, particularly across the middle, across the plains. Did you find that as well? Well, not so much, and I thought I would, but because I've got Parkinson's and the brain needs to be stimulated, um, while meditation has one sort of effect which stops the mind from being busy and allows you to reach into a whole other area of yourself, with Parkinson's it's, it's really important to keep the mind busy. So being able to do many things at the same time consciously uh, helps the the uh, the brain uh, do its job in the most fruitful way. Yeah. So I would uh, need to make sure my arms was going right back with the Nordic poles, making sure that I planted them, they didn't slip, uh, looking at my balance, especially going downhill on the uh, loose rocks that some people will remember were on a couple of those hills in on the, on the Camino Francais. And uh, ironically, I was, uh, I was running down the hills because it gave me much more firm pressure when I landed. And, I was, and it quickened my mind to an extent where I was much more aware of, of where there were problem, possible yeah. problem areas. Um, I was uh, looking around and trying to make notes of things so that I was to write at the end of the day. I was aware of talking to other people and having to also be aware of my movement at the same time. So my meditative time probably came at the end of the day and uh, early in the morning. So, uh, When you're talking about it, Will, look, I think you're gutsy. I really think you're fantastic. Um, and, and I think, as I said earlier, you're not a sufferer. You're a survivor. You could be angry about lots of things, I think. But you're not, are you? Uh, no. And um, maybe there's a little bit of anger with some, uh, some relationships, things, some, some family things that I know can't get resolved. Um, I've, I've talked uh, about this to those particular people and uh, that's been good for me. But when I get to a stage where I can't resolve something, it's not a good spot for me. Um, but I guess I have resolved them to the, sense, to the extent that I know I've done as much as I can and there's no more I can do. So I've been able to uh, leave that and uh, know that it's there at the back of my mind. But it really doesn't interfere with my daily life. It doesn't interfere with my meditation. And it doesn't interfere with uh, the most important relationship in my life, which is uh, with my wife, Corrie. Can I just, as a last question, ask you, are you frightened of Parkinson's disease? No. Um, and it really interesting question because I've looked at the uh, people looking for a, uh, a cure and as I walk the Camino, I've, I'm raising money to find a cure. But at this stage... I don't really want a cure because I'm meeting so many challenges that a cure might not stop those challenges being realised. But 
for a short time I'd be thinking, well, what do I do now? <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm okay. I know that it, it's, it's going to get worse, um, but I don't, I don't think that way ahead. I want to prepare for that, and the way to prepare for that is to do as much as I can now to help myself with it and to make it easier on myself and potentially my wife so that um, I can be as fit as uh, a person with Parkinson's as I, as I can be. Well, you won't like me saying this because you're too humble, but you're awesome. And you're a true pilgrim in being brave enough to take on a difficult journey on the Camino de Santiago. And dare I say, you're most brave having the guts to take on the journey of the mind. And in my view, the steepest and most difficult and most treacherous Camino of all. So thank you for your wisdom and scholarship. We're all richer for your sharing. Buon Camino, and thank you. Thanks, Thanks Will. Appreciate it. My guest this week, Will Bogue. And you can follow Will's journeys, his travels, and share what he's learned about Parkinson's disease at willtowalk.com.au. All one word, as they say, willtowalk.com.au. I'm Dan Mullins. Another inspirational discussion this week. I'm beginning to think I have the best job in the world. I'll be back next week with another Pilgrim's Tale. Until then, Buon Camino. Buon Camino.